0: Have you ever noticed how your brain can sometimes be your greatest asset, but at other times a total liability? Like how it tends to approach performances as if they're life-or-death tests of our worthiness as human beings, even though this pretty much is a guaranteed recipe for misery before, during, and after performances? That's obviously way more pressure than anyone needs, so searching for a more performance-enhancing way to view performances, i.e. reframing, is something that many musicians have experimented with at some point. Popular reframes include, Remember that the audience is rooting for you to do well, they're on your side. Or, think of your performance as a gift that you are sharing with the audience. That latter one in particular is a reframe that I've heard many times. And to the degree that it can shift our attention away from ourselves and more to the music and what we want the audience's experience of the music to be, perhaps this could help to diffuse our nerves, anxiety, and tension in that moment. But is there any evidence that this actually works? Answering this question would be a lot simpler if there were a study that looked at this exact question, but if there is one, I'm not aware of it. However, there are a few studies which have looked at something similar in the context of social anxiety, which is not exactly the same as performance anxiety, but it does share some similar elements. In a Canadian study, researchers recruited 122 socially anxious participants to test out different strategies for reducing their anxiety and avoidance of social situations. One group, the Acts of Kindness group, was asked to engage in three acts of kindness per day, twice per week, over a four-week period. Acts of kindness were defined as, quote, acts that benefit others or make others happy, typically at some cost to oneself. And these involved things like doing their roommate's dishes, mowing a neighbor's lawn, or making a donation to charity. A second group, the exposure group, were instructed to put themselves in social situations they'd usually try to avoid, and to stay there until their anxiety eased up a little bit. They too were asked to engage in three social engagements twice per week over a four-week period. To help them better cope with their anxiety in social situations, they were taught a deep breathing strategy, which had been shown to be helpful for reducing anxiety. Their social activities included things like asking a stranger for the time, talking with a neighbor, or asking someone out to lunch. A third group served as the control group. They were simply asked to record three daily events twice per week over a four-week period, things like attending class, cooking, or shopping. The researchers were curious to see how these strategies would affect two aspects of the participants' social anxiety A, the anxiety itself, and B, how strongly they would be motivated to avoid social situations that stress them out, also known as social avoidance goals. Regarding social anxiety, both the acts of kindness group and the exposure group experienced reductions in social anxiety when compared to the control group. They also experienced a drop in social avoidance goals compared with the control group. However, the acts of kindness strategy led to greater and faster reductions in social avoidance goals as compared with the exposure folks. So all in all, it seems that people who engaged in acts of kindness not only experienced a drop in their anxiety, but in how resistant they were to participating in social situations too. And why might that be? It's a bit paradoxical, but socially anxious individuals are more likely to experience negative social interactions because they have a tendency to engage in what are called safety behaviors that actually make their interactions worse, like inexplicably talking fast or softly or both in a meeting, or avoiding eye contact, or coming up with excuses to get out of a social situation, all of which is intended to make things better, but clearly don't. Acts of kindness, on the other hand, shift our focus away from trying to protect ourselves and onto an effort to make someone else's life better, which can put our mind in a more productive place, where we're less fearful and more prone to approaching things as a challenge rather than as a threat. So, by thinking of our performance as a gift, we are engaging in an act of kindness? Well, maybe, sort of. But put this way, I worry that we run the risk of cultivating a narcissistic perspective on performances. Maybe it's just semantics, but I think there's a similar but more pro-social way of describing this reframe that feels a little more to the point. In an interview some years ago, pianist Menachem Pressler was asked what advice he often shared with his students. He said that, quote, my most important advice is to love the music, because if you honestly do love the music, you are rewarded to begin with immediately. If you can share that love, you will reward others, and you are rewarded but if you feel that music should do something for you, then you're defeated before you begin. In that same interview, he also explained that he enjoyed performing because concerts gave musicians, quote, the ability to have people share that which you find beautiful, that which you find life-giving. So the gift is not us, nor our performance per se, but the work we have done to identify, cultivate, and highlight that which we find beautiful and meaningful in the music to curate and share what we find most compelling, as one might assemble a collection of books, or ideas worth spreading, or a team of superheroes formed to protect the earth from extraordinary threats. The end goal being less about impressing those in attendance with our technical prowess, but to make them feel hope, awe, joy, or an emotion of some kind. Indeed, while we're probably more likely to think of psychologists when it comes to working on feelings and emotions, Where do we turn to, though, when we need to be inspired, relaxed, excited, or to laugh so hard that we snort? Usually it's not just cat videos, but music, art, literature, dance, and film, or some combination or mashup of those things. So at the end of the day, yes, I think for some musicians, the gift reframe can be a really helpful way to approach performances, but with one caveat. We have to make sure that we don't get too attached to whether the audience likes our gifts or not, which Pressler also alludes to in that same interview. The value of the gift reframe lies in its ability to focus our attention and energy on the doing and sharing and excitement behind our work, not the response to that gift by the intended recipients. Do we wish our gifts would always be embraced with open arms, bright shiny eyes, and boundless joy and enthusiasm? Of course, But as any parent who has tried to find the perfect gift, cook the best meal, or buy the right clothes knows, the degree to which others will appreciate our efforts is not something we control. So I suppose it's a good thing that much of the fun is in the forethought and giving that comes before we see their reaction anyhow. You can find links to this week's study and other related practice hacks at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think would also enjoy experimenting with it during the coming week. And if you'd like to explore this sort of thing in more depth, whether it be to get more out of your daily practice or to get better at managing performance pressure and shrinking that gap between what you can do in the practice room and what comes out on stage, you can learn more about the live and self-paced courses that are available at bulletproofmusician.com courses.